Tonight on The Deep Dive, we talk about the number 10, because if you haven't heard, there are 10 big commandments, and we're going to talk about what they mean to you and why that number 10 is so important. Welcome to The Deep Dive on Tim Hatch Live. The Deep Dive, Season 7 presents... Okay, everybody, welcome back into the channel tonight, the deep dive part three of Torah, our study of Torah. Like I said last night on the deep end, I am not in Israel. I am here with you. Aren't you glad? Aren't you lucky? Aren't you blessed? As we continue this study, I was looking forward to producing a lot of Israel, Israel content for the next two weeks, not to be. We pray for Israel. If you haven't checked out the deep dive, uh, deep end from last night, please do so. It's got a lot of views already. Very important uh, information for all Christians on Hamas and the relationship to Israel and what we should do uh, in the meantime. Well, I'm in the home studio tonight as we do uh, Torah, the Law of Life, Part 3, and we're finally going to cover some laws. We're going to get through four. I think we're going to get through four. But we're going to do a little bit of review. Is that okay? A little bit of review on um, where we've been so far on the deep dive. We talked about the difference between American law and God's law. God's law is about our responsibilities. American law is about our rights. Uh, God's law is about protection of the community. American law is about protection of the individual. We talked about eight major covenants in part two last time we were together. Uh, the covenant works, grace, nature, Abraham, circumcision, law, land, king, and then the new covenant in Christ, blood. We talked about the big ideas there that you can see the theme of each covenant uh, ruling, redeeming, uh, God's restraining his wrath, God restoring creation, God return, uh, revealing his nature, which is where we are in this study mostly, God returning his people to the land, to a place to dwell with him, God reigning among them as king, Jesus, that king, and then regeneration, the new birth through the king, uh, through King Jesus. We talked about the fact that the Torah is the book of the covenant, and we also discussed this, which I really hope that you caught last time, that there were ancient covenantal agreements. There were um, four big parts of the com uh, elements of the ancient agreements. Some would say six, prologue and preamble. That would be two, but I, I tie them into one. The preamble, which we're going to talk about again tonight, which is that it is the establishment of why we're here. What is the nature of our relationship? And God does that right there in Exodus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 5. The stipulations, that's the laws that are actually given to the people of Israel. The rehearsal and witness, you got to read this, you got to read it again, you got to have people hear it. It's going to be constantly read and rehearsed. And then the blessing and the curses. Uh, these are common to the ancient world. And that's an important stipulation. It is not something that God uh, just kind of invented out of thin air, right? Because what we learn by studying that content contextually is simply this, that God chose to speak to humans in a way they understood, particularly in the ancient world, they, that God said, okay, this is how humans relate to each other. So I'm going, I'm going to talk to them in a way that they hear. And ultimately what you have to understand about these texts is God is speaking in a way they hear to where they are. 
and not to where we are. And again, the common underlying principle of this entire study is simply this, that the Bible wasn't written to you. It was written for you. Okay. I can't stress that enough because more bad theology comes from the idea that the Bible was written to you than I can unpack in an entire season of the deep dive. We could go over how many verses are lifted off the page out of the original context and slapped onto some modern context that has no relevance to the ancient context. And this is where you get false teaching. This is where you get um, bad theology. This is where you get hurt people. And so I want to make absolutely clear that we understand the ancient context here. We also discussed that God was inviting Israel to a higher law. Uh, Leviticus 18, 2 to 4, speak to the people of Israel, say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you live. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You are to be different. You are to be different, and that is the heart of God in the law. And so what we realized and what we discussed uh, last time uh, in Torah part two was God is speaking in a way we can hear him. And we we delved deeply into commandment number four already. We will revisit it tonight. Commandment number four, the law of the Sabbath because that is what God practiced in the first page of the Bible, Genesis chapter one and into Genesis chapter two. And what you see there is an invitation in the fourth commandment to participate with God in achieving a goal. And so that brings me now tonight, finally to Torah part three, review over. Here's the question tonight. Are you ready for it? Cause it's big. How are we to view God's law? Now, I just want you to think about this for a moment in your own life. And I bet, if you're honest, like me, there have been different seasons in which you have interpreted or listened to or received God's law in different ways. Amen. Um, When you first come to God's law, you probably come to it, well, in my case, if you're young enough as a child, and yeah, there's this God and he is great and he is awesome and he is to be feared and you know he's a god of judgment and he's a god of wrath and so obey and it's a great tool for parents to have a god of judgment in their back pocket especially when you know you're you have that rambunctious child you know raise your hand if you've got a rambunctious child i mean i always say to people who have the calm firstborn child i say watch out for the second one (laughs) so you know it's that perception is God's law is to be obeyed because God is to be feared. But then when you get a little bit older and you have friends and secular friends and non-believing friends, you start to maybe pick up some um, skepticism or I would say maybe disregard for the law of God. How dare God take away my my life? How dare God limit me? Right. So so number one in how we, do, we view God law, God's law, the question is, do you see it restrictively? Like, this is a limitation on your happiness. That's why a lot of people avoid the Bible or avoid church. They um, assume, wrongly, that God is out to get them and restrict them and keep them miserable. And that if you obey God, you will have no fun. Life will be boring. And they even have the image of heaven as 
I'm going to go and die and sit on a cloud and play a harp forever in worship to God. And that's heaven. And it's like, what are you thinking? And I think they think, well, at least I'm not in hell burning for all eternity. <laughs> so it's better than that. But it's still boring. No. We have got to see through God's law that he is inviting us to something far more beautiful, wonderful, and glorious than sitting on a cloud playing a harp for all eternity. But we've got to move beyond the elemental vision of the law, which is it's restrictive. God is limiting my happiness. No, as psalmist says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is a God of pleasure. Paul says to first Tim in Timothy in first Timothy six, that God give us, gives us everything for our enjoyment. Okay. Enjoying life is not a sin. Okay. Go and read Ecclesiastes. I got a book about it coming out, ending emptiness coming out uh, shortly. Uh, what does Solomon say repeatedly in that book? He says, this is the whole will of God that you might do your work and enjoy the work of your hands. This is the whole purposes of God. And that's right. Of course, there's a problem with sin, which is why we're dealing with the law that rest restricts us from truly enjoying our work. And when you think about it, that is really the key um, distinction here. God's law doesn't restrict. Sin restricts. Sin um, holds us back. How, how many of you maybe came from families that were broken apart through adultery or divorce and it held you back? How many of you, you stole, you got in trouble, you disobeyed God's commandments? Maybe you committed adultery and rather than advancing in life, you realized that that pursuit of sin, that's pursuit of pleasure, became a restriction. It, it became a, a, a hook in your, in, your, in your lips, like a fish, pulling you backwards, right? The, what does coveting do but pull you backwards, focusing you on other people's lives instead of focusing on what God wants to give you? So restrictive, a restrictive view, that's a, I would call the teenage kind of view of the law. We got to move beyond that. Number two, problematic. And this one I understand far more. I put captive women there in parentheses because I think about the laws of the captive woman, which we will get to. And it looks on the, on the surface of the page, very problematic. What is God saying? Uh, where is the justice? This is misogynistic. This is patriarchal, right? All the things that the secularists throw at the Bible we're talking about here. So this is, would be, I would call this beyond the teenage years. Now you're into the college age years, the adult years, the single adult years of your, you know, spiritual approach to the law of God. And some people are there, many, many, many people are there where they just see so many problems with the law and they think there is no way that I can live or base my life on what some farmers wrote in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. I mean, you know, you've heard that argument. I've heard that argument. And so eventually you have to grow past that, but some people will never grow past that. Uh, then there's the idea of the old fashioned nature of the law. You know, how can I believe what Middle Eastern men a thousand years ago wrote or 2000 years ago wrote? So there's a couple of things that I have in mind here when it comes to understanding these ideas regarding restrictive we think God's law is restrictive. No, sin's restrictive, uh, problematic. The law was not written to us. It was written for us. It's not written to our context. It's written to an ancient context, a very barbaric context, and then old-fashioned. The, to the people that say that, I would just submit this. History is not on your side, and you are not novel. 
There have been generations of world leaders, totalitarians, um, dictators, fascists who have said, we're not going with that book anymore, that old, ancient, outdated book. And history has proven them wrong and the Bible uh, trustworthy. And it has stood the test of time. It is still the best-selling book in the world, not even on the, the bestsellers list anymore because it's just always the highest on the list. The Bible stands the test of time. There's no other book like it. Uh, there's no other words like it. And it still has the power of God in his proclamation to bring salvation. So we have to move beyond the secularist nature, the elemental nature, the outdated nature or approach to the Bible. Which one was yours? I'm interested in your comments and feedback. Put it in the comments below or to the right. And by the way, if you haven't subscribed or clicked the like button, uh, please do so. But I'm interested in your your um, what did you wrestle with when you were growing up with the law? Was it was it restrictive? Did you see it as God was holding you back? Was it problematic? Did you see there was different issues that uh, there were there were texts that just seemed so outdated and so wrong? And then again, old fashioned. Where were you on that? Because I'm interested again in your feedback on the channel. Love to have the conversation. I do read all your comments, even though I don't read them live while we're doing teaching or uh, deep end material. But we're going to get into something that is so important for us now that I can't stress this enough. You're going to see the Ten Commandments in a new light. And I believe that is going to help you understand what God is really doing in the commandments. When we say Ten Commandments, I want you to think about the Ten Words because the text biblically in Hebrew doesn't say commandments. These are the Ten Words that Moses gave to the uh, people of Israel. So commandments, again, speaks to that restrictive nature. Oh, yes, God just wants to command things to, uh, of me. He wants me to be commanded to do all these kinds. Of, and so I understand, even in our presentation of the Ten Commandments, we can read beyond the text and apply uh, an English word that's not in the Hebrew. And this is case in point here because the Hebrew doesn't say commands. The Hebrew says these are the Ten Words. In fact, we can go over to the Logos Bible Can right now. And you can see right here, what does it say in verse 1? And God spoke all these words, saying, okay? And the word, word, in Hebrew, is the word, dabar, and it means word. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes we don't have to go very deep into our exegetical study there. It just means word. Now, why is that important? Why am I emphasizing that? Because how many people think about this, and maybe you come from a charismatic background in your own life, to say, people will come to you and say, I have a word for you. And it's such a beautiful, life-giving thing. Oh, you have a word for me. A word of encouragement, a word of wisdom, a word of you know empowerment. Parents, you should be empowering your children with your word. You should also be directing and confronting and correcting your children with your words. But words are personal. Words are communicative. They are how we establish relationship. You see someone, the first thing you're going to do is greet them. Put out your hand and say hello. That is a word. It is an invitation to relationship. Commandment is distant, isn't it? It really is. And if you think about this more, more deeply, which is what this study is intended for, you will see that. God, oh, he just, he's out, the, he's up in heaven commanding. He's up in heaven just telling people what to do. No, no, no. 
even in the text, it tells us that he comes down onto the mountain, invites the people to come close, not too close, but come close and I will give you words. Now the people freak out and they say, no, Moses, you go up. That's in Exodus 19. You go up and you tell us what God said. But what God is doing there is he's put out the handshake. He's welcomed them in. And now he's giving, giving the people words. I want to communicate with you. I want you to know me. And then this number 10, and this is going to really blow your mind. So stay with me as I do this very deep, prolonged um, discussion on the number 10 in scripture. Because, and this is very important, you may not have realized this, the number 10 is involved in creation. God speaks and things are created into being. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 to 2, verse 3 to chapter 2, verse 1, God speaks 10 times and God said, right there in creation, there are 10 words of God. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be a firmament. And then God said, let there be lights. And then God said, let there be vegetation. 10 times. Now, this is really cool. This is how God operates regularly and repeatedly in the biblical text to invite us into personal relationship with him, communal relationship with him, but communally personal. We, the community of the Lord, will know the Lord. Okay, and, and I stress that because too many Christians are all about the individual personal relationship and not at all about the communal relationship. And I want to let you know something. God never dealt individually in relationship. He has an individual relationship with his son that we don't get a part, get to be a part of. But we now have a communal relationship through his son as the bride of Christ into a relationship with God as a family. Okay, so please understand that even all the words in the Ten Commandments, ten words, are plural. You, plural. You shall have no other God. Plural. Uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God. You is plural. But back to my original content here. God says 10 times, let there be. That's verses 3, verses 6, verses 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, 26, 28, 29. God says these things and things are created. Now, there's also another number, a couple numbers here. Uh, 7 and 3. Why is that important? Uh, why is that important, listener? <laughs> couple things that you have to see about the biblical text in Genesis chapter one is you have constant, uh, a consistency of numbers, a, rep- a repetition of numbers. The first verse of the uh, of the Bible has seven words. The second verse has fourteen words. Uh, the last section concerning the seventh day is consists of thirty-five words. That's a multiple of seven. Seven times five. And the the expression about the seventh day has the word seventh day three times in the expression. This is intentional. God is inviting us to do study of the number of words so that we are aware he's speaking to us about more than just him creating the world. Now, the number seven speaks of completion. The number three speaks of community. And of course, God. God is three persons in one. So you have three plus seven equals 10. You have God, the three, creating the seven, adding them together, and you have this, you have this wholeness, this fullness. The number, of, the number 10 refers to that. It refers to other things. But you have this invitation in the text, even through the numbers, even through the times that God has, has said, you have a repetition that's 
God extending that handshake to us. You have uh, two groups in the uh, opening words of God. You have the first three days, you have the second three days, and then you have one day that is separated. Now the first three days God creates, the third, the second three days God fills what he creates. This is the Hebraic pattern unfolding before us in the biblical text. So you have those two groups of three, and then you have this individual day that kind of stands alone. And it's kind of interesting. What is that about? God is inviting us into something that is distinct, that is different. And we are going to get to, we're going to get to this later on. I hope I can remember to circle back to this content, but you see things standing apart. You see the way God speaks and there is significance to all of these realities on the, in the biblical text you have in God's commandments, to, in God's words to create. Again, we're only dealing with Genesis 1 right now. You have him talking about limitation. He tells Job, I limited the waves. I limited the seas. I limited the expanse in the heavens. He separates. He separates the night from the day. He separates the land from the sea. He separates the beasts from the fish. He separates the man from everything else. Only man is created in his image. He says the words, it is good seven times. Seven times he says it is good. On the seventh time, he says it is very good. And that is when he creates man in on the sixth day. And then he enters into this seventh day that stands alone. This is a beautiful picture of, of the number 10 in scripture speaking to the fact that God, hear, hear this, wants us involved in his creative work. So what if we stopped right there and said, this is what the Ten Commandments is about. It's not about God limiting my life. It's God empowering my life to flourish with him, to create with him, to build boundaries in my life, to create uh, separation in my life. How many people, there was a book written about relationship boundaries. How many people write books about boundaries, setting boundaries? You got to know when to say no. <laughs> I mean, we know we need boundaries. We need boundaries about our time. We need boundaries around our relationships. We need boundaries around our family, boundaries around our kids. The, the, the moment you have a toddler running around the house, you will be very familiar with boundaries. You will run to the hardware store and you will go to the section of the hardware store that you've never gone to before. The section on, you know, cabinet locks so that the, the boundaries are established for your children. So you see these things naturally as a human being, God is inviting you into that process wherein create creativity exists in the boundary and in the separatist separateness of him. He is inviting us into something far bigger than we realize. Now let's fast forward to the book of Exodus because guess what happens? Israel, the promised people, are enslaved by Pharaoh. Pharaoh resists the word, the commandment, let my people go. And what happens? Well, God says, okay, if you're going to resist that word, well, I'm going to give you 10 more words. And guess what happens? I want you to ask yourself how many plagues are in Egypt. There's 10. And this is not by accident. And there's correlation. Um in Exodus 6 to 12 about God decreating Egypt to release, to break the will of Pharaoh and then ultimately to release his people Israel. And there's correlation between those 10 plagues 
and God creating um, the earth, the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 to 2. So you have, let there be light in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. You have the, the plague of darkness in Exodus. You have, let there be a firmament in Genesis chapter 1. You have the plague of hail. Hail comes from the firmament. You have, let there be waters gathered. You have uh, gathered and then earth come forth from the waters in the creation account. Then you have lice coming from the earth. That's a plague. You have vegetation created on day three. Uh, yeah, day three. Then you have locusts devouring it. In the plague on Egypt, you have a plague on livestock. You have the creation of livestock. You have uh, boils on the skin. You have God making man in his own image. Don't, don't you see how there is, you're supposed to see, the scripture text is begging you to see the harmony. In fact, the, um, the inverse of creation happening to Egypt. What is happening to Egypt? 10 words of decreation. That is what's happening. So what are we asked to see here? We have to see that God is now, through his word, bringing the end to Pharaoh's rule or dominance over God's people. And Pharaoh is a picture. He's a picture for you and me of our, uh, not our, but the former Lord that we used to serve, the former God that we used to serve, the God of this world, Satan. And so if, and this is so powerful, I hope you catch it. If God's words disabled Pharaoh, broke his will and his power over the people of Israel, guess what God's word does with the devil in your life? It breaks his will, it breaks his power over you, and it sets you free. Take that to the bank. That's, that's a beautiful promise for you right where you are, right where you are. All 10 plagues um, are a direct attack on Egypt's God. They serve the God of the Nile, the God of um, the ground, the God of the cattle, the God of one of their um, gods was a frog. And so there was a plague of frogs. There's very big, deep correlation here. Ultimately, the, um, the culmination of these words leads to the death of Egypt's rule. Dominion over God's people is broken. How? Through the word of Almighty God. And so when, now, put, put these two tens together, because this is so powerful. In the first ten, God is inviting us into creation. He's not limiting us. He's releasing us through limitation and separation to create with him and recreate with him. And then, in the land of Egypt... And the release of the, of, the, of the slaves from the dominance of Pharaoh, he is setting people free. He is bringing them out. And by the way, they come out blessed, don't they? Through the 10th plague, they come out blessed with the, um, with the riches of Egypt. So these words are not meant to prohibit you and hold you back. God's word is meant to prosper you, flourish, cause you to flourish, and benefit you. Uh, one more correlation that's really cool in the 10 plagues and the 10 words of creation. We can go to the Garden of Eden and the Red Sea. How does Israel finally get free from Pharaoh's stronghold? How? They go through the Red Sea. God splits the sea. Well, this is a pattern that is released in creation. So if you go to creation, and let me just see if I can do this real quickly here. Uh, let's go to the Lagos cam. 
It says in verse six of Genesis one, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate from the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters. Uh, He called the expanse heaven. Then he said, let the waters under the heavens, verse nine, be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. So God brings dry land through the waters. Okay. Now go to Exodus chapter 14, crossing the Red Sea. And what do you have here in verse 21? It says this, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. Now, remember that God rebukes uh, Moses. He says, don't cry out to me. Stretch your hand out. Stretch out your staff over the sea. So right there in verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. Do you see what is happening here? God is inviting Moses into participation with his work of of empowering his people, releasing his people, and freeing his people. So Moses does that. He stretches out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove back the sea by the strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The same thing that happens in Genesis 1 is repeated in Exodus 14. And you have, as a result of the Red Sea crossing, you have Israel becoming God's new man, new Adam, new human uh, promised, uh, chosen people, created people to do life with God. These are beautiful, repetitious cyclic um, ways in which God teaches us not just what he wants us to do, but teaches us who he is and what he's up to and inviting us into it. So you have this harmony because in the Garden of Eden, there was a river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. So the Garden of Eden was surrounded by rivers or paradise was surrounded by rivers. And then you have in Exodus 14, you have the river or the sea divided and there is a new man on the ground as a result. Um, guys, I get it. People are skeptical. Non-believers are skeptical about ancient people writing this word and then expecting us 2023 people to live by it. Okay. But how, and you got to explain to me how on earth, could ancient Bedouin people come up with this kind of symmetry? It is impossible unless they had help. Amen. And we all know, we all know uh, what the help was. Uh, some notable mentions of the number 10, just so you have it for your reference. You have the Passover lamb was chosen on the 10th day. You have the 10 days of remembrance, repentance uh, that's still active in the Jewish calendar, starting on Rosh Hashanah and ending with the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. You have 10 generations between Adam and Noah. You have Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who do not eat the choice food of Nebuchadnezzar, and they are 10 times, Nebuchadnezzar finds him, finds him 10 times wiser than all of his wise men. You have uh, Jesus healing 10 lepers. You have Jesus with parables of tens, ten minas, ten virgins, ten talents. You have ten toes on Nebuchadnezzar's statue in Daniel chapter 10. You have ten horns in the beast uh, in Daniel 7 and in Revelation 13 and 17. You have a tithe, which is a tenth of one's income. And you have ten days from Jesus' ascension to the Father to the spirits falling on the day of Pentecost. These are not um, by accident. In fact, every single one of those from the Passover to Daniel's flourishing in Nebuchadnezzar's court to the healing of the lepers to Jesus's teaching. 
What are all those about? They are about those who listen and receive God's word, are blessed, strengthened, flourished, and prosperous. And so that is how we are, we are to view God's law. So back to our postulation, our question before, and I hope you put some comments to the writer down below about how you see God's law or how you struggled to see God's law before you were saved, you know, restrictive, problematic, or old-fashioned. But what if, this is the big what if right here, what if it is an invitation into recreation? What if God, through the law, and this is, this is my theme for the teaching, God in the law is inviting his people into recreating and participating with him in that recreation. And I can't think of anything more beautiful than that. I really, I really can't. I think it's amazing. I think this is what we are, in, we are begged to do from the biblical text to see the, to, to see, to see the law or how we're supposed to see the law. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, 47. It is no empty word for you. What? What God is speaking, the law but your very life. The law is life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land you are going over to the Jordan to possess. This is God's promise to ancient Israel. By the way, you say, well, I'm not ancient Israel. No, you are new covenant people through Christ. And what does John say about that? The word, John 1, 14, became flesh. Now the word there in Greek is logos. We'll get to that in just a moment. And the, law, and the Logos, the word, dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word Logos is incredibly important to the biblical text and the biblical writer because it teaches us something about John and his strategy, if you will, on writing Holy Scripture. Logos was not some weird, just random word that John chose to refer to Jesus. No, Logos was the rational intelligence that the Greeks believed ordered the universe. Okay, there was a, um, there was a philosopher, a Greek philosopher around 500 BC, his name was Heraclitus, and he believed, this is from pbs.org slash faith and reason, he believed that the word logos referred to the rational divine intelligence, which today is sometimes referred to in scientific discourse as the mind of God. The early Greek philosophical tradition known as Stoicism, which held that every human participates in a universal and divinely ordained community, then used the logos doctrine, doctrine as a principle for human law and morality. Stokes believed that to achieve freedom, happiness, and meaning, one should attune one's life to the wisdom of God's will manifest in the second distinction above of logos. This is... Phenomenal on so many levels, because what it is teaching us, it is teaching us that number one, there is eternity written in the heart of man. Ecclesiastes 3.11. I have a book coming out on Ecclesiastes, <laughs> second plug of the night. So we have this inward call written into our DNA that God is there. There's something, there is intelligence behind our reality. The ancient Greeks saw this. They said, okay, that's logos. We're going to call that logos. By the way, we get the word logical from it. So when somebody's being logical, they're just being in tune with the natural order of things, right? John teaches us now as New Testament scripture, uh, Christians to say, if you want to speak to people, use their words, use their language, draw them in by kind of hijacking their um their communique. How do they talk? How do they correspond? Let me tell you, John is basically saying, what that logos is. The rational mind that you think ordered the universe, guess what? 
John is saying, I met him. I walked with him. I saw his glory. He's full of grace and truth. And this is how our forefathers in the faith chose to represent the Lord. And this is how we should as well in our generation. Another notable mention, now thinking about the, the number 10 one more time, is that if Jesus is the word, it would make sense, wouldn't it, if he used the number 10 to refer to himself. Guess what? In John's gospel, he does. Now, there is a misnomer about the gospel of John that many of you have probably heard, that there is seven I am statements of Jesus in John, in John's gospel. It's a misnomer. There's actually 10. And there's a few others, but they aren't as uh, direct as these that I'm going to share with you. So the 10 I am statements of Christ in John. Number one is John 620. As he's walking on the water, he says, take courage. It is I am. I am is a reference to the I am statement God gave to Moses at the burning bush. Number two, I am the bread of life. John 635. Number three, I am the light of the world. John 812. Uh, I am the one who bears witness about myself. That's John 18, 818. Before Abraham was, I am, John 8, 58. I am the door or the gate of the sheep, John 10. I am the good shepherd, John 10, verse 11. I am the resurrection and the life, Lazarus's tomb, John eleven twenty five. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, verse 6. And I am the true vine, John 15, verse 1. There you have, right there on the lips of Jesus, okay? He is the seven plus three. He is the God-man who is fully God, fully man, and he unites heaven and earth. And he is the one on whom the angels ascend and descend, also from John's gospel. And in Revelation, you see the angels descend and ascend. He is the one who brings us into participation in right relationship with the creator to recreate with him. Ah, beautiful things. Just beautiful harmonies and symmetries in the Bible. And that brings us to the Ten Commandments. Finally, finally, we're going to talk about some laws, shall we? Shall we talk about some laws on our study of Torah? I say we do. Let's get into it. And let's talk again about these ten words, the Ten Commandments, ancient covenantal elements. We talked about this already. I'm just going to rehash it. There's a preamble. Here's the preamble in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 2. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So preambles in ancient covenants were like this. Here's the basis for our relationship. Here's where we're going to, here's how we're going to do uh, life together. Here's how we're going to relate to each other. And here's the, here's the reality of a relationship. I, God says, brought you out of slavery. I made you free. This is God being direct about the reality of the relationship. Israel, you did not save yourself. You did not pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, and Pull yourself out of slavery. I mean, Moses tried that and he killed a guy and God said, okay, that's enough. You're going to be taken out of the picture for 40 years and I'm going to deal with you and I'm going to show you. I'm going to bring you to the end of yourself so that when I actually do call you to deliver, deliver them, you're going to beg me to choose somebody else because you have no confidence in yourself. Because you're not going to do it. I'm going to do it. But I'm going to choose to use you and do it through you. But what we see here is the law comes to Israel only after they're delivered. I hope you heard that because I have so many people, so many uh, instances with people who think I've got to do better and God will accept me. No, no, no. 
God receives you to himself and then he gives you the words to live by. That is how the Bible works, friend. It is consistent, old covenant, new covenant. God, on the basis of grace, brings saved people out and then tells them how to live. The law comes to those God has saved. Every covenant is built on grace, election, and divine prerogative. Every covenant, every covenant, <laughs> you, you, you cannot find a covenant in the Bible where it is God saying, wow, look at you. I think that I am going to now respond in agreement with you. No, he elects. He elects David to be his covenantal representative head, the kingship, the king covenant. He takes David out of the pasture fields. Um, he elects Israel out of Egypt. He takes Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. He tells the disciples, you did not choose me. I chose you and I appointed you. Every covenant is on the basis of grace, election, and divine prerogative. It is not on the basis of your own work. So, so that means that we are to obey God because he has saved us. We don't obey God in order for him to save us. Uh, there was this picture that I was just, as I was studying this, it, it was put into my mind. If we are to understand God's law, it must be rooted on the basis of his work to make us who we are, not on our good personism. That is to say that the law is not a staircase that we climb up. Okay. The law is a chair. The law is a chair that we sit in. We don't climb up to God. In fact, even in Jacob's ladder, that very famous passage in Genesis, it says that the Lord stood above Jacob on the ground. He saw the ladder, but the Lord stood above him. So that means that the Lord came down the ladder. Okay. So we have a God who has come to us, has established relationship with us, and now has given us, based on his grace, the things that he wants us to do. So this is why Paul will say in Ephesians 2, 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are seated. We are seated in Christ. With, in, in the heavenly places with Christ. So we live from that. We don't aspire to it. We live from it. It makes all the difference in the world on how we respond to this God. Now, one more thing about 10. Are you ready? This one's not in the Bible. This one's with you. There is another notable 10. Actually, there's two other notable 10s that you should probably be very familiar with. If you've ever had a child like I have, and I did this when, I, when my first was born, when my second was born, and when my third was born. What did I do? I saw the nurse take the baby, wash it off, and, you know, put it in a little swaddling cloth, if you will. And I unwrapped it and I checked. And guess what I checked for? I checked for each arm, at the end of each arm, little hands. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. Oh, thank God. And then down there, end of the leg. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. What do we got? We got 10 fingers, don't we? <laughs> and we got 10 toes. And it, this is just a story that I have. I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm just being corny or whatever, but why do we have 10 fingers? And why do we have 10 toes? God is asking us, God is asking us to remember two things. We are made in his image. 
10 and 10. And we are to follow him and work with him with our hands and our feet to bring creation back into order. Remember the 10. So Exodus 31, verse 18. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. What does Proverbs 7, 2 to 3 say? Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. What you see repeatedly in the biblical text is you see God's invitation. Come, come, let's do this together. Take my hand, my hands into your hands and let's do life together. Uh, a couple other passages that refer to God's finger. This is important because it teaches us about how he works. Uh, Exodus 8, 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not let, let them go. Deuteronomy 9, 10, kind of a repetition of Deuteronomy uh, Exodus, which we just quoted. And the Lord gave me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Uh, Psalm 8, 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers. Luke eleven twenty. 20, what does Jesus say? It is by the finger of God that I cast out demons. God's work in creation. Liberate, set free, establish, and prosper. Not restrict, not prohibit, not to remove fun, bless. There is a blessing in the word of God. And the best part of all is that God is stretching forth his hand to bring us to himself, like a father, bringing the child to himself. And, that, and I thought about this, that Deuteronomy um, is more of a pastoral text. You know, Exodus is kind of like cold, just to be honest with you. It's a bit cold. We're going to talk, we're going to learn about this as we go through the law uh, in this series. But Deuteronomy is far more pastoral. Um, you think about it, it's the, it's the Deuteronomy Deutero Namas, second law. And so it is kind of God reaching out to that second generation that that did not, that was too young to have failed to believe God for the Canaan, land of Canaan. So he re enforces the covenant with them. Let me just give you a passage of scripture because it's beautiful. Again, putting in your mind, 10 fingers made in the image of God to create, to um, liberate, to uh, work with God in recreating what the devil has decreated through his disobedience. Okay, Deuteronomy 5, it says this. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord your God, the Lord our God, made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood before, between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up to the mountain, he said. Look at that line face to face. The Lord spoke with you face to face. Now, if you have a face-to-face -face conversation with somebody and it's intimate and you want to really catch their attention, what do you do? You might, you might speak softer. You might do that. You might get a little closer. But if you really want intimacy with someone as you communicate something to them, and I've had this happen in my, in my life many times, people take your hands in their own. Okay. In fact, at every wedding I've ever performed, I have the husband or the, the, the groom and the bride take their hands into each other's hands when they say their vows to each other. Because there is something intimate, there is something connective about hand-to-hand -hand, um, contact. And when God says through Moses that I spoke to you face-to-face, -face, this is the image that I have in my mind of what's going on there. I have the image of a father and a son, hand-in-hand. -hand. 
This is the transmission of the nature of God into the heart of his children. Ten fingers in God's hands, ten fingers in our hands, ten commandments, ten words that created, ten words that liberated, ten words that will prosper God's people. And when we draw near to this God, it goes well for us. We are blessed. We are prosperous. And we start to partner with him in creation. Amen. I said we would get through the first four commandments. We're not going to have time. I'm sorry. We're going to postpone that content. Uh, and we are going to get to commandments one through ten next week on the deep dive make sure if you haven't already click that like button the subscribe button the notification bell get notified every time we go live and i would appreciate um your feedback liking the video of course love your comments this is what we're going to do all year i am already as i teach this there's just a fire in my belly i hope you're feeling it and experiencing it the law of God is truly the law of life. Amen. Support the channel if you would be so kind. Cash app, Tim Hatch Live, cash or, or timhatchlive.com slash support. When you support us, uh, you, we support Project Rescue and American Bible Society. And uh, that is the episode. So my prayers are for you that you come into the hand-to-hand, face-to-face contact with the Lord and you come to know him for who he wants you to know him to be, your father who loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God bless you.